Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 38 of Tim, recorded on November 7th, just after uh, a labor strike has ended, and it sends our children back to school. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Grow Old or Don't, and our outro is Centipede. Corrections today. You know when you're in line at the arcade and you're waiting for your turn at the game, but there are like these two guys that have been playing at it for a long time and you're getting impatient? Yeah, that's those two blokes over on Oak Island trying to find the money pit. I think those guys have had their chance, and maybe they should let somebody else give it a try for a while. In any case, I got impatient and incorrectly suggested that they fulfill the prophecy that says that a final person will have to die before the treasure can be found by sacrificing all the virgins on the show into a volcano. And that was wrong of me. The world is already suffering enough from critical staffing shortages, and that was unkind. I thought in one of the Season 8 episodes of the Terrible Lizards podcast, when I saw it was about ornithochirids, it was going to be about dinochirids, and was sort of disappointed. Would I have rather heard about giant-armed, unusually strange, and historically misunderstood giant herbivorous theropods, rather than a great big pterosaur? Yeah, but was ornithochirus still a really cool pterosaur? Yes. But it's definitely not a dinochirid, plain and simple. And similarly, because paleo-nomenclature is confusing, when I was reading about the procomsignathids and the late Triassic theropods, or scarcity thereof, and saw that sedgosaurs were replaced after the late Triassic extinction by theropods, I initially thought I was reading that segnosaurs were being replaced, not sedgosaurs. Now, segnosaurs and sedgosaurs are entirely different things, and any confusion was an error of mine. My mistake. All right, in dinosaur news... Uh, let's start with a paper so new it isn't published yet. I was provided a pre-proof version, but it describes a new, cool, basally branching hadrosaurid. The paper, A New Duck-Billed Dinosaur from the Upper Campanian of Texas, points to a greater diversity of early hadrosaurid offshoots. Is yet to be proofed, but it describes the, quote, previously undescribed genus and species of hadrosaur Malfica decteri from the middle to upper Campanian upper shale member of the Aguja formation in Texas. The name Malefica decteri means she's the sorceress of Bruja Canyon for Frank Deckert, where Deckert was the lead for the Science and Resources Division of the Big Bend National Park responsible for collecting the type specimen. The type specimen TXVP41917-1 is housed at the Vertebrate Paleontology Laboratory at the Jackson School Museum of Earth History, and it was excavated from the Aguja formation and is comprised of a partial left maxilla. The hadrosaurid maxilla is particularly useful in differentiating species, and despite the incomplete nature of the material, this new taxon is diagnosable by several atopomorphies and a unique combination of character states. As a scientific discovery, this critter and others in its family shows, quote, increasing evidence suggesting that there were sufficient divergence events between hadrosauridae and saurolophidae to ensure preservation of a number of recognized taxa in the fossil record. Malefica helps for better tracing the evolution of the features of the saurolophid radiation. Saurolophid hadrosaurs are the duckbills with the ornamental and perhaps instrumental crests on their heads. Malefica would be uncrested. The author further suggests, quote, it may have taken more time for hadrosaurids to diversify than previously implied, as this new species' introduction into the hadrosaurid family may suggest. The authors conclude, basically branching hadrosaurids like Malefica decteri 
were distributed in southern Laramidia, in addition to Appalachia and Eurasia, quote, evidencing the widespread occurrence of these early hadrosaurid lineages in the northern hemisphere spanning the uppermost Santonian through the upper Maastrichtian. And it's from these animals that the great diversity of Sauralophidae evolved. Our second news article today is from January 1972, and it is about dinosaurs, though that wasn't specifically conclusively known at the time. So, from the Wilson Bulletin, volume 84, from January 1972, our second paper today is The Role of Avian Rectal Bristles. The abstract discusses the rectal bristles, which are modified hair-like feathers on a bird's face, which may run along the rectal region, known as rectal bristles, in many diverse groups of birds, including Apterigidae, Capromolgidae, Aegothelidae, Mimidae, Accipitridae, and Tyranidae. Those bird families are the kiwis, nightjars, which seem like sort of like owls, long-tailed tits, mockingbirds, yeah, eagles, and flycatchers. And the family of flycatchers includes one of my wife's new favorite birds, the mannequins, one species of which has a mating ritual that includes wrangling up a dance crew to woo the female, which perform and await her approval or rebuffing. It's the most hilarious thing I've ever seen Sir David Attenborough narrate. So these rectal bristles may also encircle the eyes and eyelashes and lie over the top of the bill as laurel bristles in numerous species. And laurel bristles appear to be uh, in front of the eyes. These bristles appear stiff, tapering to a point at the end, and there may be barbs present on the rachis. And the rachis is a portion of the feather shaft which supports barbs. Back in the days before this paper, there were some considerations that these facial hair-like feathers were potentially useful in capturing insects, or perhaps served a tactile function. But, quote, no convincing evidence has been gathered to date to demonstrate the actual function of these bristles, but it appears that their use as an insect scoop is negligible or non-existent says the author, Roger J. Lederer. So this paper investigated and answered what is the role of these avian rectal bristles. The author carefully recorded and investigated how, for example, a variety of flycatchers caught flies, observing that they relied upon the tips of their beaks rather than far back in their mouth where the rectal bristles would be. In fact, a hook in the upper mandible of the flycatchers appears to be the evolutionary aid employed to capture flies in their beaks rather than the rectal bristles. In summary, quote, it appears as if the use of rectal bristles as an aid to aerial prey capture by arthropod-eating birds has been casually accepted without definitive evidence. The most logical explanation for the presence of rectal bristles is that they perform some sort of sensory function. Further investigation is obviously warranted, concludes the paper. In conclusion, birds are using these bristles for sensory perception. You can only imagine, as I wonder aloud, if you were a flying organism, how useful would enhanced sensory perception, in this case thanks to bristles serving as extra antennae, be in navigating the skies, or turning in formation with your peers, or detecting and employing updrafts and gusts of wind, or perhaps, as in the eyelashes, protecting your eyes from harm so you can continue tracking insects or seeing in the dark of night, and things like that. One can only wonder, and perhaps wish, they could learn more about these avian features. If only there were someone we could ask about that. Which leads me to introducing my guest for this episode. All right, my special guest today is Dr. Roger J. Letterer, who is an ornithologist who has consulted on programming for networks like the BBC, National Geographic, ABC News, NPR, Fox TV, Vanity Fair Magazine, the Guinness Book of World Records, The Weakest Link, uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and a lot more. He's presently a member of the Emeritus and retired faculty and staff of Chico State University after teaching more than 30 years, publishing more than 30 academic papers and 11 books, including Amazing Birds, Birds of New England, Latin for Bird Lovers, Beaks, Bones, and Bird Songs, and Birds, Ornithology and the Great Bird Artists. So, Dr. Letterer, thank you 
for joining me today. Oh, glad to be here. This is excellent. Dr. Letter and I met at the grocery store earlier today when we had to play a high-stakes game of winner-takes-all rock-paper-scissors to decide who would get the singular final turkey at the supermarket in advance of Thanksgiving this weekend. <laughs> Congratulations to you for shooting scissors in defeat of my paper uh, to bring joy to your household this Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. Birds always do that. <laughs> yeah, this is wonderful. Thank you for being here. So you have to tell me, are turkeys your favorite bird to eat? Favorite bird to eat? Yes. <laughs> I had turkey. I actually like turkey. I don't. I don't have enough of it. I just get it around Thanksgiving, and I don't think about it the rest of the year. But mm-hmm. it's. I think it's. I love the legs. Yeah, I like turkey too, for sure. They can be awfully complicated to prepare, but. <laughs> and then I'll throw the carcass out out in the backyard, and uh, turkey vultures will come and eat it. And they just they eat the bones and everything. It's pretty amazing. It'd be gone until like twenty four hours. Hmm. Are there, there's a couple birds I keep hearing that are, their diets consist of bone, which is like, not a lot of animals do that, but um, is it the turkey vultures? Some condor maybe was, their diet was exclusively on, of bone, which was... Yeah, there's a, uh, and I can't remember the name of it offhand, there's a vulture in um, in Africa that uh, feeds on bones, big animals, it'll take rocks, the bird will pick up rocks and crash into the bones and break them open, eat the marrow and eat the rest of the bone if they can. That's I forget what the name of that bird is, but so you spent a long career uh, studying birds. Did you did you get to spend much time with like poultry and and uh, like common like barnyard birds, <laughs> or is it more fantastic than that? No, just wild birds. I mean, I get lots of uh, questions about on my website. I get fairly frequent questions about all kinds of birds, and sometimes it'll be about cockatiels and canaries and poultry and whatnot. And I tend to send them somewhere else because I don't don't keep birds in cages and I've never kept poultry. My neighbors have chickens, but that's as close as I get to them. So your website is, is ornithology.com? Yes. You got to be up pretty early in the morning to get ornithology.com. <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, well, actually, I just, when, you know, when all, this is 20 some years ago when all this business of dot-coms came about, I thought, and I was about to retire and I thought it would be interesting to have a website on ornithology. So I looked it up. Somebody owned it. Turns out it was a guy in Los Angeles who was a lighting, uh, whatever they do. He, he controls the lighting on all the stages in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And he bought a whole bunch of websites. He didn't know anything about ornithology. He also bought paleontology.com. He didn't know anything about these. He just thought they were good names. Okay. And uh, so, you know, I got to know him and we worked on it together and I finally just bought it from him. And then uh, he also bought Tahiti.com, and he ended up selling that for a quarter million dollars. So he did a right on his .com name selling. Man. <laughs> yeah, I started to make mine into sort of, you know, a monetary thing, but I found out I was putting so much time into it for very little money. I just said, nah, nuts. Every once in a while, I'll put an ad on if somebody really wants it. I get requests almost every day for somebody who wants to write something from my website but they want to write and then what they want to do is they want to plug something and it's often it's a cbd or or porno or viagra or something like that i just turn them all down if they want to advertise a, a birdhouses that's fine <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> so in your bio, you mentioned that uh, you've consulted for a few game shows and for the Guinness Book. What sort of ornithology services uh, does the Guinness Book of World Records require? Well, what they they only asked one question. They sent me a free book. It was pretty easy uh, to get 
book they asked about what the fastest bird in the world was. Okay. And uh, it was a swift. I forget how fast they fly, but it was, you know, and a straightaway. Mm -hmm. I mean, they talk about peregrine falcons who dive at 240 miles an hour, but that's not a dive. You know, it's just like dropping a rock. But the swifts can fly at 150, 160 miles an hour straight away, just using their wings against gravity. That is incredible. So they, they asked me to, you know, verify that. That. The same thing with, you know, who wants to be a millionaire and things like that. Mm -hmm. And there was another show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire kind of show, but it was in Spain. I got a number of questions from them uh, about whether this is true or not and whatnot. They just wanted somebody to back up their conclusions. I, I get that. So I get a lot of contacts from a lot of people all over the world um, through my website. And that's, that's why I keep it. It's pretty enjoyable. Including goofballs like me that uh, actually didn't find your website to start off. <laughs> I had to go through your alumni yeah, association. You came through a different door. <laughs> but I'm glad I found you. So uh, I was actually looking into uh, the fastest birds, but more so in terms of like running as opposed to flying. And I was trying to think like how fast are actually the like bipedal animals. And there aren't a lot to choose from, but uh, I think the ostrich and the kangaroo, they, they both, this the internet told me, were clocked at like 70 kilometers an hour, which is pretty good. But it's, bipedal animals don't, uh, it's not an easy go to get run, running real quick. Yeah, ostriches, got, they're probably the fastest running one. And bustards, too, I think, are, are pretty fast. And a couple of, most of those ground-dwelling birds tend to be, you know, that don't fly, tend to be, or, or bad flyers, they're also bad runners. But the ostrich is different. Is that right? And probably some of, some of the other birds, like, you know, that, that were around 50, 60 million years ago, some of the bigger birds, they ran pretty fast. Like, the, well, the terror bird is one of the one of the birds found in southern North America and South America, and it was this big, voracious kind of bird and ran down prey, just as sort of dinosaurs we had expected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are crazy-looking things. Are they, I think they're, they're more moderate. Was the elephant bird... That was hunted by humans, wasn't it? I can't recall anymore. There's a couple of them that were really yeah, big animals. Are, yeah, they, I don't know how fast they ran, but they, they didn't need to run fast. Mm -hmm. They were 10 feet tall, weighed 1,000 pounds, and nothing was going to go after them. And they didn't chase anything. They ate mostly fruit or vegetation, that kind of stuff. I always liked the, the uh, comparison. The elephant bird egg was hoed. Hold 33,000 hummingbird eggs. That's how big it was. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hot fact. I like that. <laughs> so how did you get uh, into the career of ornithology? What uh, what led you into the, the academic pursuit of uh, studying birds? Actually, fish were my first interest. I raised tropical fish for years when I was in high school, a little bit in the college. And uh, then I, when I went to college, it turns out the guy, a professor who taught ichthyology, was well I, I didn't like him um and neither did anybody else for that matter but the guy who taught ornithology was really good and well respected and uh after i took an ornithology course it all became very easy to me as it's just pretty obvious this is what i want to do so that's the route i went i still like fish but i didn't make a living out of them mm -hmm. imagine observing birds is a little bit more easy than observing fish as well <laughs> well that's true too yeah <laughs> So, like, in your career then, were there particular questions that you were especially interested in answering through through studying birds? Well, when I started out, I 
look for a research project when I was in graduate school, and it was uh, the rectal bristles. Mm -hmm. I read about rectal bristles, which are the bristles on the side of a bird's face, sort of like the whiskers of a cat or a dog. And I'd read that uh, they were used as an insect scoop to, to push insects into a bird's mouth as they were flying along. And I read that several times, but I didn't see any evidence for it. I kept reading it. I started looking it up. It was nothing. It was one of these things that just kept repeating. Things get stuck in textbooks and wherever, and people just accept it. And I said, that, I don't think that's right. So I set up experiments and actually filmed flycatchers with high-speed camera and caught the flycatchers, put them in a big flight cage with a glass front, and fed them flies and, and uh, filmed them catching flies. I probably used 10,000 feet of film and ended <laughs> up with maybe 200 feet. Um, but I found out they don't use those rectal bristles. They just, they just slam their beaks down very quickly on the, on the fly. And later, somebody, uh, other people start looking into this. And that paper, actually, this is, when was that? That's kind of almost 50 years ago when uh, I published that thing, but people are still quoting it. I get little notes every week or two about how somebody quoted my paper on rectal bristles. So <laughs> it was one sort of success. Didn't make any money on it, but, you know. Um, anyway, it turns out what they are is sens sensory organs, that there are little nerves that go from the uh, bristle end of the bristles to the brain, just as they do in the cats and dogs. But in this case, when the bird is flying, it helps them sense the speed at which they're flying, the direction they're flying, if they're moving left, moving right, moving down, and so on. Apparently, that's that's <laughs> the thought now. They must be so challenging to to study, like um, because watching them do wild things. Uh, like flying is so hard from like the observer, you know, where you're standing <laughs> to, to, you know, you have to film it, I guess, but that can't be easy either. Cause they, they obviously fly away from your camera and things like that. Yeah. You can, yeah, you gotta watch what you're doing and you can't, you know, you can interfere with what's happening. People mm -hmm. walk through nesting sites and they say, this is this, this is this. And some of the question is, uh, well, did you disturb it? Is it really like that when you're not there? Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of question as the tree make noise in the forest when it falls and nobody's there to hear it. Mm -hmm. You don't know uh, what the birds are doing. Although now it's becoming with all these drones and uh, geosensitive kind of stuff, people from airplanes and so on, we know a lot more about birds than we did before without disturbing them. That's interesting. I know that um, in the second uh, novel that Michael Crichton wrote, that the, the, uh, the concept of interfering as you observe that there you cannot it's not possible to enter into an environment and observe it without changing the environment while you're there and so that's a big i wouldn't say a big part but it it influenced the the course of their actions on in the second book so that's interesting yeah i think what's interesting about the uh, they do have these geo trackers they're little instruments they tie to a bird mostly bigger birds because they're they're still not small enough to put on like warblers Mm -hmm. But they put them on uh, crows and ravens and uh, pelicans, things like that. They can tell where the birds go. They can sense their activity, whether they're feeding or they're swimming or they're flying, how fast they go, the direction they go, all that kind of stuff. And they can download it, you know, two seconds after it happens. Mm -hmm. That's pretty expensive, but it's it's worth the information, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is the Jurassic Park cast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. Um, have you read the book? Have you enjoyed the movie? 
I saw the movie. I don't think I read the book. Mm -hmm. um, it's the movie when the movie came out a long time ago, but I, I did see it then, and I still remember parts of it anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get the idea. <laughs> you got the. Was there anything special about it that you recall? Or did you? Uh, well, I think it's really interesting because things have come along in terms of DNA. I mean, we have uh, in the last fifty years or so, DNA studies have really um, changed a lot. I mean, when I went to when I was in undergraduate school, they were just coming out with the structure of DNA, Watson and Crick. In fact, I met Crick at one time. I didn't know what to say to him at the time. I mean, we, you know, he visited our university and gave a talk, but then he, he met with a bunch of students. And it would have been nice to have a conversation, but I, what do I say to a guy like that? I was an undergraduate student, didn't know much. And this guy's this famous, you know, scientist. I can say, well, how's, how's Mrs. Crick? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't have any good questions for him, but it was amazing to meet him. Anyway, so DNA structure was just, uh, had come about. But since then, we've come up with all kinds of things. And I can certainly conceive of dinosaurs or some other creatures coming about at some time, not in my lifetime, but sometime in the future, we can recreate animals that, that existed at one time. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how that's going to happen, but so much has happened in the last 50 years. And another 50 years, it'll be pretty amazing. There's a, a DNA extraction technique that they mention in the novel called Loy's procedure which is uh you like grind up bones or something like that and you're able to extract some of the dna and they can do that with very old things but not with like fossilized things i don't think i think that uh fossilization ruins the dna but uh yeah for for things that might have been around in the old world you know in before before settlers and things like that there might be a chance to to, to get some of the the dna out of out of that through the Loy's procedure so but you're right when's it give you anytime soon i don't know <laughs> yeah the, yeah the other way to go about it is uh like they're doing this studies in uh, germany with the auroch auroch uh, was the original sort of cow it's where our cows uh, evolved from and they're they're taking they're sort of breeding backwards and uh, also using some gna dna editing techniques and trying to recreate the auroch from existing dna you know with in live animals doesn't refigure it. You know, take a little bit of DNA can make a big change. I mean, our DNA, human DNA, is like 99%, 98% the same as chimpanzee. So just a 2% difference between us and the apes. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine very little change can happen and we can recreate some things that didn't exist, you know, haven't existed for quite a while. Yeah, the possibilities. I think <laughs> Crichton had a couple books where he, he was really fascinated with... Uh, what little tweaks might do and what that means for the future. <laughs> well, if you, uh, when you liked the movie, did you were you especially attuned to the to the to the film's particular mentions of of birds and dinosaurs being closely related? I know that uh, at the very beginning, Grant is talking about there's no wonder these things evolved into birds, and then the kid laughs at him and he says, you know, the Velociraptor is like a six foot turkey. Did uh, <laughs> it seems like Grant's great big in the novel. His his academic pursuits are all about like warm bloodedness and uh, the lively, uh, active animal as opposed to the cold and sluggish one. But in the novel, kind of, or sorry, in the film, it kind of boils down to like the, his interpretations. And dinosaurs are very bird like. The birds are very dinosaur like. Um, yeah. Did you do you recall at all <laughs> kind of that argument being made when you saw the film? I, no, I didn't. I guess. Okay. <laughs> it's been a while. 
Well, fair enough, fair enough. Um, one of the other arguments that he makes is when they, there's that stampede of gallimimus that are, are running, first, Grant describes the gallimimus to be just like a flock of birds evading a predator. And then they're stampeding, and then once a tyrannosaur captures them and it starts eating one of them, Grant says, I'll bet you never look at birds the same way again. So there's this reaffirmation that uh, at the beginning when he's describing the Velociraptor and then later on in the film really made it important to say that, you know, this is Grant's interpretation. And that was still, at that time, I don't think a lot of people were really gung-ho to, to fully embrace that birds and dinosaurs were as closely related as people are saying today. Well, it's been argued for many years uh, in the ornithological world, back and forth and back and forth. It's pretty much settled now that birds are sort of a modern dinosaur. And especially, well, it used to be, well, there was one bird called Archaeopteryx which was for years, it was, this is a fossil found in 1860-something in Bavaria in a limestone quarry. And it looked like, if you look at the skeleton, it looked like a reptile skeleton. It had uh, rooted teeth, it had a long bony tail, it had abdominal ribs, and it had claws on its wings, it looked like a reptile, but it had feathers. Mm -hmm. It clearly had well-developed feathers. And that was 150 million years ago, and people said, this is the perfect, and it is, I still have sort of a perfect uh, combination or transition form between reptiles and birds. But since then, we've found many more fossils that they give us that fill in an awful lot of gaps, especially in China. Mm -hmm. Lots of fossils have been found in China, different sizes, different shapes, uh, and that's showing more and more clearly the, the progression towards birds. And one of the most recent ones, I think, is uh, discoveries is that it used to be thought there was feathers. Feathers evolved from scales, that dinosaur or reptile scales just elongated and became feathers. Mm -hmm. Turns out that's not true. They're a totally different structure that evolved from some, some other kinds of cells. And the, and the so why did they evolve? But if you look at some of these dinosaurs that were found, I can't remember the name of this small one, but just found about 20 years ago it had colors it was like brown and white um pigmented colors on this dinosaur bird but they're really tiny little feathers they figure what's the difference why do you have these little feathers on there it was for it was for uh, identification so males can tell females so they can tell different species apart so feathers came about probably as identification and not as uh, insulation mm -hmm. I think the, that dinosaur was the Microraptor. I think I was hearing about how they've been able to decide that it was black. <laughs> yeah, everything, everything was black or gray or green at one time, but now they're finding more and more yeah. colors and patterns and so on. So they're filling and smoothing out the gap. I mean, fossil birds don't fossilize very well as opposed to mammals, because birds, when they die, they're really light, generally, they're, they're, their bones are light, of course, their feathers, they fall on top of a lake, and uh, mostly predators will get them, or they'll decompose before they hit the bottom, while well, a raccoon hits the lake, and others just sink to the bottom, get covered by sediment. If you look at a bird, you see roadkills, uh, often see roadkills along the highway, you rarely see birds, because they disappear in three, four days. They'll get, their skin is so thin and their bones are thin that vultures and insects and everything else gets rid of them, while a raccoon or a possum will sit there for weeks sometimes. So the fossil record, anyway, the point is fossil record is not as good for birds as it is for mammals and for reptiles and, and other vertebrates. Mm -hmm. I know that when I went to college, I didn't have a chance to 
uh, look at dinosaurs as closely as I, I had when I was in high school and, and before that. After having our first kid, we, we got back. He got into dinosaurs, and so I had a chance to kind of revisit and see what they were like. And what had happened over those 20 years between when I tuned out and tuned in, a significant lot of discoveries had been made, and it included the an anti-ornithines, which were, um, again, these fossil birds that we didn't or weren't being reported on prior. And then there's this whole new class of, of dinosaur that, um, yeah, they, they seem to have incredibly small but interesting uh, feathered fossils for, for all these these birds that are watching their their pubis and stuff like that wiggle around so they can finally get into flying position and growing the uh, the, the the breastbones and things like that and uh, yeah just fascinating how there's this whole new category of dinosaurs that uh, has kind of just presented itself over the last 20 years and that really connects the dots between dinosaurs and birds in a, in a profound way really cool you, you bring up another interesting point is that kids, at least in the U.S., I mean, when they're second, third grade, they're really big into dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And they learn all these names, Diplodocus and, you know, Tyrannosaurus rex and all, and they know all the scientific names. By the time they get to sixth grade, they don't like any of that science stuff. You know, it's that's all boring and do do other kinds of things. If we could get kids hooked on the science, you know, through dinosaurs, and some of them do, mm -hmm. um, I think we'd be better off scientific literacy because dinosaurs really get kids interested about science. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's two different ways that a lot of people who wind up being paleontologists get into it, and that's either you got to go through the rock lanes where you have to be into, like, geomorphology, and then the other is through uh, comparative anatomy as, like, a zoological pursuit but those are both fascinating fields and uh very interesting you get to learn a lot about the world when you start looking at stuff uh, at a close level yeah, like that yeah. absolutely i just can't see myself i see these uh paleontologists chipping away at a rock and i said i don't want to spend you know 12 <laughs> hours a day chipping away at some rock i mean maybe i can get a graduate student to do that then that'd be fine okay show me what you got when you get done but mm -hmm. i'm not gonna but it is fascinating stuff. I've been through a couple of museums with and, and seeing some of the dinosaur bones, some of the bird dinosaur kinds of things, and it's just it's amazing what they're able to find out through that. Yeah. Kind of Did you in your career get to work on fossils very much? I never have. No. no. I mean, I've just seen them as a matter of curiosity. I've met people who do that kind of stuff. I was in Russia for a meeting about 30 years ago, and they were, they were really big into, uh, they've got a big uh, dinosaur paleontological museum there, and a lot of bird specimens as well. Mm -hmm. They're really, uh, I think they're far ahead of us in terms of paleontology, Russia and China. Yeah. I haven't heard so much about Russia, but uh, maybe that's like a language barrier that keeps that from being known to me. <laughs> But yeah, to, I'm not. I'm not familiar with that. But some other somebody's got a. I guess somebody does that. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, you were talking a bit about like feather evolution. What I guess was the going conclusion on on like where they came from and what they were being used for? Because they're finding more and more that both sides of the dinosaur family trees appeared to have had uh, feathers, which means that. If you go even further back to the common ancestor of dinosaurs, that might have had feathers. Like it wasn't just a unique thing that some theropods had developed. What What are some of the, I guess, things that you've heard about where feathers come from and how they were being used? Well, I mean, they originally came from whatever these new cells were. I can't remember. There's a guy named uh, Prum, 
P-R-U-M, I think he's at the University of Pennsylvania, who's the one that came up with this idea about 20 years ago, mm -hmm. Richard Frum, and I think he's got a book out on it about the feather evolution. And so, obviously, you've got the feathers there, and they did provide some, accidentally provided some insulation, and as dinosaurs were becoming warm-blooded, those with insulation are going to be better off than those without insulation. So the insulation got a little bit thicker. And then, uh, you know, how you, uh, how you determine how flight came about, why the feathers got even longer, there's all kinds of uh, uh, theories about that, and nobody really knows. But some feathers got longer for whatever reason, and birds started to glide. And when they were gliding, they were also moving farther and faster than those that didn't glide. And so that's where flight came from. Mm-hmm. Or they, or it helped them run along the ground. That's your other. That's the other theory. Okay. One of the things I heard was um, that uh, they found an oviraptor specimen, and it was brooding over its nest, and it was uh, very carefully uh, looking over its eggs. And they thought that when they discovered it, that it was trying to steal the eggs. But it appears that it was uh, nesting over it, over them. And their idea was that the you, these long vein feathers that came out of the forearms may have been for for protecting the eggs that you might uh, have evolved them and they might have grown some length for the purposes of of protecting the nests. Yeah, is, a number of desert birds will do that. They'll cover the eggs, yeah. you know, with a, with like with a little umbrella. There are also birds that like uh, like little blue heron who will stand in the water and spread their wings out and shade the water so that fish come underneath there in the shade and then the bird, of course, gets, gets the fish. A number of herons that do that. You can see them just up like this with their arms up in the air, shading the water. I just watched yeah. a video of a heron and it took a little crumb of bread and threw it in the pond yeah. and then yeah, a fish came to get it. Them. I couldn't bait them. Well, the first time I ever saw that was a black kite. I guess, I don't know where it was. I was in Turkey or someplace in Europe. And I was watching out and looking on the ocean. I saw this kite dropping sticks. He just little sticks. He'd fly up in the air and drop a stick. And I, th I thought he was picking up the sticks to do a nest, make a nest. But he was flying and he'd, he'd drop a stick. And then all of a sudden he'd drive down to the water. So what they were doing is just attracting fish. Wow. They like setting traps. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. That is amazing. So I contacted you because I think that Michael Crichton actually references you in the novel, though somewhat ambiguously, and uh, you have your reservations that it may, may or may not be yourself. Um, but I think it's there's there's a link that could be said that he, he found your name because of a relationship to birds and uh, and uh, maybe didn't make an actual character of you. But I, what do you think of that idea that maybe he found your name? I know you were both probably living in California at the time. <laughs> Did they put a first name to it? It's just letterer, unfortunately. <laughs> Very <Okay>. ambiguous. <laughs> but uh, so the circumstances are Grant, Tim, and Lex are in the aviary. They're looking for a telephone, but instead they're attacked by pterosaurs. And then Grant tackles one of the, di the, the dinosaurs and it is, quote, lifted itself up on its little wing claws and began to walk that way. And then Grant paused, astonished. It could walk on its wings, exclamation mark. Letterer's speculation was right is the line so it looked like he was referencing an academic <laughs> and um and so as far as i could tell there was no actual doctor letterer who published on pterosaurs and craig was like i said fairly ambiguous about who this letterer was but i did find a series of pterosaur papers that reference your work on the role of rictal bristles which you said you didn't know about before <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> um, what was his speculation? Oh, just that the 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 pterosaurs were able to walk on their hands, so like they kind of. Yeah, he speculated that, and then they actually saw it happen. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's the idea. You mentioned that you get like a little ping every once in a while that one of your papers has been has been cited, and usually that would be on a, a paper on like toucans or something like that, right? All right. <laughs> so um, yeah, I looked into looked into the articles and see what they were talking about. So your paper concluded that the the rictal bristles were not being used to feed the birds insect. It wasn't trapping the birds. It had nothing to do with feeding directly. And then it hypothesized that more work had to be done to, to study how they were being tactile um, sensory organs instead of, or sensory antennae anyhow, instead of being used to eat. That's what all scientists always say after they do the research is at the end, more work needs to be done. That's sort of a cop-out. This is, I didn't do it all, so somebody else needs to, needs to do it. But yeah, walking on, the, on their, on their um, claws makes a lot of sense. Archaeopteryx probably did that, you know, mm-hmm. had some claws in there. And there's still, there are cases, well, there's one bird, the Watson, Watson H-O-A-T-Z-I-N, in uh, South America, that has that the young have claws and they climb through the trees. Wow! Um, as they get older, they lose the claws. And there are instances of crows. I know of crows and probably other ones too that are hatched with claws on their wings every once in a while. So wow. there's still that those genes are around someplace. That's crazy. So the um, the first pterosaur paper I found that was referencing your work on rectal bristles was from May 2008, and it was called A Reappraisal of the Asdarkid Pterosaur Functional Morphology in Paleoecology. Uh, it was written by a really great paleo artist and paleontologist named Mark P. Witten. If you look at his stuff up, he's awesome. And, uh, and another cryptozoologist and paleontologist, Darren Nash, in, uh, they're both in England, in London. Uh, and Nation Witten specifically referenced your paper in consideration of whether Asdarkids, uh, which are big-faced and sometimes they're like the size of a giraffe, if they might have been mid-air predators, and they and it speaks to your observation on beak tips and snapping in your flycatcher study. And so uh, oh, really? they say that, A, hawking airborne prey with your claws would compromise your wing membrane and stall the wings, and B, as darkids didn't have raptorial claws, and they observed that the, quote, <laughs> extant volant tetrapods that employ oral apprehension of aerial prey have short, wide skulls and often possess deep mandibular symphyses and reference your paper's description of the flycatcher's beak tip. So that's what they were doing there. And they were con- contrasting the Asdarkid skull, which is elongate and narrow. Uh, and so your paper helped conclude that the giant Asdarkid pterosaurs were unfit for high-velocity pursuit. And the hypothesis that they were capable of routine aerial predation of other volant animals can be rejected. <laughs> that's what they wanted to say. Well, that's interesting. I'm going to look up some of those papers. So these pterosaurs were like really big they said that they were likely terrestrial stalkers that they would have crawled around on the ground and just plucked plucked i guess prey out of the grass or whatever was around which is pretty interesting are there are there any any birds that would be considered like terrestrial stalkers that might do something similar good question i was thinking about it and uh unless you well if you could Consider birds that eat insects as stalkers. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a lot of them like that. I mean, meadowlarks walk around and starlings do that. Um, a lot of other birds just walk through the grass and pick at things, but they're not, you know, they're not eating squirrels or 
things like that. You don't have hawks walking around on the ground or vultures or eagles or something, big predatory things. It's all smaller stuff. Mm-hmm. Little ground creatures, not, not quite as exciting as pterosaur. <laughs> so the next paper I got here referenced the rectal bristles from March 2015. It was called Bristles Before Down, a new perspective on the functional origin of feathers. They reference your paper. It says, uh, it is now recognized that early feathers had a simple form comparable and general structure to the hairs of mammals. Insight into the prevalence of simple feathers throughout the dinosaur family tree has gradually arisen in tandem with the growing evidence for endothermic dinosaur metabolisms. And this has led to the generally accepted opinion that the early feather coats of dinosaurs functioned as thermo insulation. And I think that's what you were talking about too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the bristles are a modified kind of feather. If you look at it, they're built the same way. But mm-hmm. how they came about is sort of interesting. And if you look at the bristles uh, through, I mean, what got me interested in is, look, bristles, okay, if they're going to catch insects, how come bald eagles have them? You know, they're not eating insects. And if you look at uh, kiwis, well, kiwis do eat insects, but they're very long bristles in that case. They're almost as long as the bill, probably five, six inches <laughs> long. So obviously some sort of feelers, you know, just like they are in cats and dogs. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to look up all that paleontology stuff. I didn't know they were, I've got, I, I get references to uh, biological things, mostly on feeding habits, but I haven't looked into paleontological information to see how they're using my rectal bristle stuff. <laughs> The paper that they wrote was basically similar to when you did the rectal bristles study, saying the common consensus seems flawed, and we should look into this a little bit more closely. They feel that the feathers weren't primarily evolved for the purposes of thermal regulation, but they love this idea that the bristles are a sensory organ. And they advocate for a novel origin theory of feathers as bristles. Bristles are facial feathers common among birds that function like mammalian tactile whiskers and are frequently simple and hair-like in form. That the feathers were evolved primarily for the purposes of it, their their ability to provide sensory uh, reception as opposed to for any other purpose. And then, of course, feathers became very good at a whole bunch of things. So, But they think yeah. they made the argument that that's the, these bristles are the first feathers. They argue that the bristles are the first feathers? Hmm, I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I, I mean, reptiles don't have bristles like that. It's true. That I'm aware of. And I don't know that fish have anything, and they live in a similar environment where you're in three-dimensional space all the time. Well, I mean, some fish have whiskers, you know, yeah. like catfish. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, hold and hold and, Well, I could get back to my research. <laughs> Are there, are there particularly strange features that some birds use their feathers for that are, like, really out of the ordinary? Oh, well, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, birds of paradise, of course, are well known for all kinds of displays, hanging upside down and various kinds of iridescent feathers. And there's, uh, I think there's like 28 species of them. And, uh, David Attenborough, I think, has a... Uh, program on them. I know there's a book out uh, with all the pictures of them, and I think there's a website too, but they're pretty fantastic, all the way those feathers have come about. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's a motmot, which, because they're in New Guinea, but then there's a motmot, which is from South America, that has a long tail, but they pick the feathers, they pick the barbs off the tail and make different kinds of decorations. Uh, by plucking the, the, the barbs out, you know, I guess for the females, the ones that do the best job of plucking their 
barbs out, get the females. And there's lots of other kinds of uh, modifications of feathers, you know, like peacocks, obviously, mm -hmm. or, you know, um, what's the one? I can't remember the one they call the Michael Jackson bird. I forget what it is. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about it. If you look it up, if, uh, if you get on YouTube, you can do Michael Jackson bird. I forget the, the name of it escapes me. But there's these orange birds with really funny little uh, extensions of their feathers that stick out. And the bird does this moonwalk kind of thing like Michael Jackson does. Oh, wow. And it's orange and black. It's pretty spectacular. <laughs> um, I know I was at like a, a, a farm that had flamingos. And... Also, there there were peacocks, as are often is the case. You kind of have like a wild pheasants walking around, and one of the peacocks was albino. And I remember asking the because asking one of the, the crew, you know, is is the albino one popular? Do the other peacocks like him? And they go no, <laughs> and it must be for a peacock to be. It's so important to look like a peacock and to be really colorful and have that great display. And to be albino must be just the saddest moment for <laughs> for a peacock. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, uh, idea. I don't know. There are a lot of albinos show up but in, in jays and in robins and lots of other kinds of things, too, and also partial albinos. And that's true. House sparrows, lots of them have just big patches of white hmm. for some reason. But you don't see a lot of them because I think they probably just, yeah, don't attract mates. But <laughs> albino genes are there, so they pop out. So there was a special dinosaur that was found. It was a little uh, herbivore, I think that had uh, the impression in, in the fossil ha had like spires coming out of its shoulders that went up and above its head. And it just had like six or eight of them that just kind of strung out in this unusual shape. Uh, it was called the Ubirajara, Ubirajara, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, but apparently it was, the fossil was acquired and studied unethically and the paper has been retracted so you can't go look at it. But um who knows what strange things in, in you know, a hundred million years of evolution that the feathers could also have been doing. Yeah, evolution is sort of like that old joke about, you know, infinite number of monkeys and infinite number of typewriters. One of them will eventually write a Shakespearean play. And yeah. I think same with evolution. They've given enough time and if it's had plenty of time to come up with some very strange things. Mm -hmm. Birds and lots of other creatures. So another paper I found here was from October 2020. And uh, it's... A review of the taxonomy and paleoecology of a neurognathidae pterosaurs, and it was actually the guy was uh, the, uh, the paleontologist was a guest on my show uh, earlier in the year. The neurognathidae is a family of smaller, short-tailed pterosaurs that lived in Europe and Asia, maybe North America. They say I wasn't able to look at the paper because it was behind a paywall, but uh, it's very similar to the hypothesis that was presented in the S. Darkin paper in that. This is like the opposite shape of, of the of the uh, the long faced big as dark kids. You yeah, mentioned I don't know. I never look back at the history of Rictal bristles, see where they might have come from originally. I'm just sort of generally about feathers, but that would be an interesting thing to go back and see how those particular things evolve. Where where they come up with with, and why do some birds still have them and they don't use them? Mm -hmm. You were mentioning before about how. Um how dinosaur names are, are fun for kids to learn and that <laughs> it gets a little too sciencey sometimes. Uh, but like the names of birds, their they're, they're scientific specific names are awfully tricky, I think. <laughs> Is it fair that birds have like a common name and the scientific, like every bird seems to have a common name or a popular name that's not scientific. Why have we done this with birds? 
Well, you know, I think bird names are, are, are really interesting. It's a book, um, Latin for Bird Lovers. By the way, I hate the title. I, I argued <laughs> with the editors and publishers I wanted Latin for Bird Watchers, and actually the Australian version did that, but they wanted Bird Lovers, so mm. okay. Um, but the birds are the only group that has official common English names. There are 10,000 birds approximately, and they all have an official common name. That's unlike any other group of organisms. Every other group of organisms, you know, any, any common name will work. And then, all, of course, all these scientific names are, are they're descriptive in different ways. Yeah. And some are named after people, some are named after the sound, some are named after geographic location, some are named after a description of the bird whatever it happens to be, but they're all fascinating. I'm really interested in, in the background of some of these names, why they're called this or why they're called that, both the English names and the scientific names. But I think it's really well organized in the ornithological world. And I think probably in the paleontological world too, because there's been so much study on it and they really, they really look at one or two species at a time and can put that thing exactly where it belongs. <laughs> so I think they're, the paleontologists do a good job with taxonomy. Well, like, I I feel like I've kind of got the hang of dinosaur names, like saying them. Some of them are tricky, like that whatever the Yubi Juraja thing was earlier, but uh, bird families are big tongue twisters to me. <laughs> and I'm just not ready for them. Uh, but I, when I was looking into it, there was um, there are a couple dinosaurs that are named after the, the Latin bird names, which is interesting. So the Gallimimus refers to a chicken, I think? Galliform, yeah, chicken and pheasants and peacocks. Right. And then there's the Struthiomimus, which is, uh, I guess, the Struthiidae would be this ostrich. Struthiiformes. Well, there's an or yeah, order, order and family. Family, all, all the orders, I think all of them end in I-F-O-R-M-E-S, and all the families end in I-D-A-E, so that's pretty consistent. I think there might be a couple of exceptions, but it's pretty consistent that way. Um, I think that there was one dinosaur that got maybe made redundant, but uh, there was an Anatosaurus, which was uh, referring to the, the ducks, the duck-billed dinosaurs. And, oh, right. And then, obviously, every every theropod that has raptor in its name will be referring to the word that's used to describe. Is raptor a type of bird, or is it just describing a type of birds? A raptor is... is... Yeah, well, it describes a type of bird, but also in general, raptor means just means something that uh, goes after prey with with either big teeth or big talons or something like that. But there are also raptorial flies, <laughs> so it applies to applies to almost anything like that. That's a big predator or a predator much bigger than its prey. Interesting. So, like a shark could be a raptor. That's interesting. Uh, and then one of the names that I came across uh, because I was looking at flycatchers is the Tyrannidae, which sounds like the terrific dinosaur category Tyrannosauridae, but it's a tyrannical species of bird instead. What what terrific type of bird shares its name with the horrifying Tyrannosaurus? What, why, what is so tyrannical about a, a, a flycatcher? Well, they, they tend to be sort of aggressive, and they also can raise their the feathers up on their head. So, you know, just like horses put their ears back and so on, they have an aggressive stance. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not particularly mean birds, uh, except to insects. <laughs> um, birds are really tough. Like geese and, and swans and blue jays, 
like just the common stuff around here they in turkeys can be this way too they get in your face if they want to they are mean sometimes and they're pound for pound they put up a bigger fight <laughs> than a lot of things yeah i mean yeah geese and, and ducks will come after you of course they're not going to hurt you but uh the, the turkeys can be pretty nasty when my wife my wife has a couple of horses and she goes out to this little ranch where she keeps her horses and the owner of the ranch one day not knowing any better uh, my wife comes home and says oh yeah lynn just bought a couple of turkeys i said they're not going to last long <laughs> you know, why not because they're just nasty sure enough two weeks later she got rid of them because the turkeys were chasing everybody who came to came to visit their horses wow <laughs> yeah that's tough uh turkeys <laughs> I, I can't help but think like how territorial like even a blue jay blue jay one so here's a little story uh we had a a, a cat and uh, the blue jay must have had a nest or something out back. And it spent two days uh, dive bombing my cat as it sunned itself on the deck. And then on the third day, there was nothing but blue feathers everywhere. But that blue jay was so stubborn. And um, and they're just tiny little things. And they're stubborn to death, I guess. But it's it really surprises me how just aggressive they can be. Yeah, they will be, especially during breeding season. Jays and crows and the mockingbirds are all like that. But any bird will be aggressive up to a certain point. You get too close to the nest, they're just going to fly away. I mean, they'll sacrifice themselves. Well, they sort of sacrifice themselves by flying out at you. But at a certain point, the predator gets too close. They're not going to do that because they're just going to get eaten. Mm -hmm. and they won't have more kids. So they give it up and let their kids go. It's a tough life out there. <laughs> I did some, I, when I give a talk, I always talk about the, uh, give an example of a robin a robin is typically has five or six eggs and uh maybe one of those eggs will actually make it to the to be an adult robin the next year and then uh, it'll migrate again and maybe half of those will make it and something like uh it's a, a robin has a one one out of five chance one in a one out of five robins will actually make it to a two-year-old bird mm -hmm. something like that and that's all, there's almost a 90% mortality among songbirds from one year to the next. It's a, it's a tough life. And you know what? And there's been things, there's been hypotheticals on dinosaurs where they think that maybe the big sauropods had been just cranking out eggs like turtles do. Just feeding entire environments by, by just uh, having all these eggs all over the place and then some of them will make it to the, to the right size eventually. Because they would have been when they're little anyhow a lot of meat to eat if you're <laughs> if you're trying to eat something like that yeah i know some of the dinosaurs took care of their youngest i mean they're just like birds did i don't know how what happened after the young hatched whether they took care of them after that or whether they just let them go like turtles do and one of the other neat things i like to sometimes look at videos of cassowaries although the videos that are, are publicly available maybe don't they make them look a little too friendly, I think. But um, the novel compares the Velociraptor to a cassowary. Um, have you had much time to spend on cassowaries in your work? No, I mean, I've seen them, but, you know, and I've heard stories about them. They can be pretty nasty. I mean, they'll, they'll pick up those claws and they can actually kill people. They've done it a few times. But uh, ostriches would do the same thing. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And to imagine the... Those are the like the meanest birds we got in terms of they're big and they're scary and I can't imagine what a whole world you know full of dinosaurs with that or perhaps 
just as big, just as mean as like these ex- exceptional birds <laughs> that aren't the common ones. If the whole world were overrun like it is with seagulls or geese or something like that, and they're all cassowaries or ostriches, it'd just be a different world. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to have been around about you know three hundred million years ago. It was one scary place. I think so. Well, speaking of big mean birds, I appreciate you coming on during your Thanksgiving. And I uh, hope you enjoy the turkey that you guys have uh, going yeah, for yourself this weekend. We're going to be mean to the birds this year. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Benjamin Franklin wanted to make the turkey the American uh, symbol rather than the bald eagle, but he got voted down. What would you have thought of uh, the turkey over the bald eagle if you had to pick a, pick one? I mean, turkeys don't get you know enough recognition, but there. Are, I read yesterday, New York Times. There's a school in Texas somewhere, a high school where the where they, and the, this area is known for all the turkeys and turkey hunters, and and anyway, the school mascot is the gobbler, and they have some kid dressed up as a turkey who comes out, and the whole team is it's one of these typical Texas high school. Um, towns where you know the, the the high school stadium holds as many people as the town holds that's a big deal and so they're it's the gobblers so you don't make fun of them but they're the only team that i can think of that's actually named after a turkey <laughs> that's funny awesome well thanks so much for for joining in and uh, and sharing your insights uh it's been a lot of fun i think it's cool do you think that do you think it's your name in the book <laughs> I don't know. Well, I hope so. Then I could maybe I could make a little money out of that. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation. So you have a nice day too. All right. A big thank you to Dr. Roger Letterer for coming on the show. Thank you so much. And not to leave anyone hanging, I did a quick scanning of the internet and found that the bone-eating African vulture we couldn't name is the bearded vulture, whose diet consists of between 70 and 90% bone, which is crazy. And the Michael Jackson bird is the red-capped mannequin. And it's, uh, it's a strange-looking dude. <laughs> so check those out if you want to look them up. Text. This week's text is Tim, spanning from pages 204 to 210. In a synopsis, a concussed Tim Murphy awakes from the Tyrannosaur attack to find himself trapped in a car atop a tree. He climbs out of the tree as the Land Cruiser crashes down above him. Characters. We get Tim Murphy. Tim wakes up with his face against the car door handle drifting into consciousness on page 204. He struggles with the symptoms from acquiring a pretty significant concussion from the Tyrannosaur attack. He has pain in his cheekbone, his whole body aches, there's a terrible pounding in his head, and the pain compels him to go back to sleep. He throws up, he feels dizzy, his head throbs, he has a memory loss, obviously a concussion, but he also feels seasick as if he were rocking back and forth until realizing... He really is rocking back and forth. He's in a tree. He spots a stegosaurus, discovers his wristwatch is broken and takes it off, escapes the Land Cruiser, and then falls about eight feet onto a branch, winding himself. He looks up and finds that the Land Cruiser is crashing down after him, so he drops the remaining 12 feet to the ground. As the Land Cruiser crashes to the ground, sparks burst from its stinging Tim's skin, so it landed very close to him. The stegosaur snuffles over to the Land Cruiser after it falls from the tree, and Tim's not ready to face more dinosaurs at the moment. He throws a rock and yells at it to go away, which the stegosaur does. Alone again, Tim now has to formulate a plan on page 207. He remembers the night vision goggles are in the Land Cruiser, and they can help him see in the dark. He has to climb through the broken windshield to get into the Land Cruiser, but finds the night vision goggles, and upon returning them on, finds it reassuring to see in the dark on page 208. Tim reaches the second Land Cruiser on the main road and steals himself before looking inside, expecting to find mangled bodies, but it is empty, thankfully. He starts to panic, though. 
that he's all alone in the jungle with dinosaurs at night. He desperately calls out for his sister. Lost and alone and feeling loss and grief, he sits in a puddle and whimpers. But there's some hope. When he stops whimpering, he hears someone else whimpering too. He may not be alone after all. Lax Murphy. Lax's baseball is on the side of the main road on page 208, and Tim finds it in the dark with the night vision goggles. As far as we can recall, she's dropped from the Land Cruiser when the big Rex threw it, and then with a duck of the Tyrannosaurus head, her screaming ended. And we're meant to believe that Lex has been eaten. Robert Muldoon, he carries a black metal case as he enters the control room on page 208. He's prepped and ready to go out into the park, but he's impatiently waiting for Harding to return with the gas-powered Jeep. Harding should have been back by now. Muldoon's black metal case contains six portable radios, which he distributes and hopes Arnold can raise the cars after they've charged. John Arnold, he believes that Harding is sure to return at any moment with the Jeep on page 209. Arnold is impatiently waiting for someone to find Nedry. Nedry should have been back by now, too. Dr. Henry Wu. Wu enters the fertilization room on page 209 and enters the darkened, empty lab. Each of the 15 species at Jurassic Park has a 10-gigabyte optical file of its molecule and the iterations, which is a tremendous amount of data to search through. This is probably why Wu was anxious to depart with Hammond and to get started on this project, because it's going to take forever. Wu is uncertain why Grant believes frog DNA holds the secret to breeding in the park. He runs a search program that, even with the massive computing power of the multiple Cray XMP supercomputers, will take a few minutes to complete. He habitually inspects the lab equipment while he waits, and then discovers that someone entered the embryo freezer, but is distracted before sorting that mystery out by a beep from the computer that reveals, yes, all the breeding populations in Jurassic Park incorporated RANA, or frog DNA. He can no longer deny, Grant is right, the dinosaurs are breeding, on page 210. He hurries to the control room with his findings. And Stegosaurus. A Stegosaurus appears below the tree that Tim is in. Its tail flops back and forth. It has long spikes. It waddles on page 206. That it's, quote, apparently recovered from its illness suggests that this is the same Stegosaurus that Sattler was investigating earlier. And it snuffles. After the Land Cruiser crashes down, the Stegosaurus is attracted by the noise and it returns. It moved, quote, dumbly, the low head thrust forward, and the big cartilaginous plates running in two rows along the hump of the back, behaving like an overgrown tortoise. Stupid like that. And slow, we're told on 207. Localities, we have the Land Cruiser in a tree. The Land Cruiser has a smashed windshield, it's high up in a tree, and it's swaying back and forth in the wind, on page 204 and 5. It's 20 feet up in the air. The door is dented outward, and the handles don't turn, we're told on 205, and the window is stuck and won't roll down. The Land Cruisers must have those manual crank windows. Remember those back in the day? Can you even still get those on your car? I'll have to ask her and report back. The Tyrannosaur Paddock. The fence has been flattened and again is described as 12 feet high. Between the tree and the main road is dense foliage that Tim has to hurry through. The other Land Cruiser is on the main road on its side. Control. Muldoon arrives in the control room with a black metal case, we're told on 208. The Fertilization Lab. For now, it's empty and dark on page 209. The technicians are still at dinner. All right, and we have an allusion to the Leitsky DNA search algorithm. L-E-I-T-Z-K-E. I looked into what this might be referencing, but I came up with nothing. It sounds like something, but I don't know what it is. I'm sorry, folks. It's on page 210. If you want to look it up, let me know what you find. <laughs> Stylistic techniques. In italics, uh, we have, quote, But when he opened his eyes again, he saw it was true. The Land Cruiser was moving, lying on its side, swaying back and forth. In italics, the whole car was moving. And then in italics, the ground was 20 feet below him on page 205. The wheel spun free in his hand and with a loud, in italics, crack, the Land Cruiser shifted position, dropping a few feet in the branches of the tree on page 205. 
Here, the italics represent shocking discovery and surprise, and the crack is also a loud sound. Go! On page 207, with an exclamation mark, Tim yells at the stegosaur. He's already yelled at it three times, so this final time is in italics, showing he's lost patience with this stupid thing. Where is everybody gone? In italics, on 208, as Tim is starting to feel panic about being alone in the jungle, surrounded by dinosaurs. Here, the italics are indicating that he's getting more emotional. Lex, in italics, with an exclamation mark on 208. As his fear and panic reach their peak, he's yelling in italics, not caring if the animals are out there to hear him. The result was clear. All breeding dinosaurs incorporated Rana, or frog DNA, Rana in italics, on 210. Here, again, as if this were an academic paper, the Rana is italicized, even though this is not an academic paper. Colon. Tim wondered where the other people were. Colon. Gennaro and Sattler and the vet, on page 206. Here, the colon is used to present... A list. Exactly how colon should be used. Smiley face emoji. Quote, Then he realized what was wrong. Colon. The rear door was locked. The result was clear. Colon. All breeding dinosaurs incorporated Rana, or frog DNA. In these instances, it's not a list, but it's introducing a piece de resistance. The door being locked and the Rana are presented as explanations for the circumstances in which the sentence began. Semicolons. He looked at his watch, but the face was cracked. Semicolon. He couldn't see the numbers on page 206. This works fine. This is two conjoined related clauses in a single sentence. This wouldn't have been any better if it had been two short sentences, so we don't have a problem with this. Quote, there was nobody here. Semicolon. Apparently all the technicians were still at dinner on page 209. And again, this is two clauses that come together in one sentence, and these two thoughts wouldn't be better expressed in two smaller sentences, so this is just fine. Rhetorical questions. What was he going to do on page 205? How is he going to get out? Here the rhetorical devices are serving to show the character's worries. How long ago was that on page 206? Tim is trying to figure out what time it is. Where had they gone? Where had everybody gone? On page 208. Had she stayed here? Or had she gotten away? On 208. Again, Tim's worries are being heightened by the unknown, and these rhetorical devices highlight which particular unknowns are causing him to worry. Quote, But who would go in there at night? Page 210. As Wu wonders, Who's entered the freezer? This is Wu the detective. He'll shortly have deduced who the culprit is. Ellipses. Quote, and this was a good tree to climb. The branches spaced close together, almost like a staircase. Ellipses. On page 206. The ellipsis here shows that Tim might go on finding reasons to start climbing down as fast as he can, but he's scared. He's hurt. He's injured. He's confused, concussed. Basically, he's procrastinating for inspiration. He's got to psych himself out to continue. He would go on convincing himself to keep moving, as the ellipsis suggests. Except crack... The car is coming down. M-dash. Quote, But when he opened his eyes again, he saw it was true. M-dash. The Land Cruiser was moving, lying on its side, swaying back and forth. In this case, the M-dash works as a pause in Tim's thoughts as he's getting his bearings and discovering the situation he finds himself in. Quote, But here and there he could see gaps, and beyond foliage, the ground was M-dash on page 205. This time the M-dash serves as an interruption to Tim's thoughts. M-dash, again, to represent shock and surprise. The rear door swung open downward, M-dash, and came to a rest against the branch a few feet below, on page 206. Here the M-dash again serves as a pause, and does so in a way that a comma wouldn't do. The pause is a device employed to heighten suspense, so we're to read this sentence as the door swinging open, and perhaps to worry about what might happen. 
but it just comes to arrest a few feet below, as if we were on the edge of our seats but find that nothing risky happens, and so we relax, releasing the tension. Problem is, the door opening isn't all that tense or suspenseful. It doesn't make sense why this is here. It may be a vestige of an earlier draft where there was more tension and suspense built around this paragraph, which is likely. There is a ton of suspense all over the, Tim's time in the land cruiser in the tree. And so perhaps this paragraph previously once upon a time was built differently and this M-dash performed more meaning. But not anymore. <laughs> Quote, he kicked in the air, M-dash. His feet touched something solid, M-dash, a branch, M-dash. And he rested his weight on it on page 206. The M-dash continues operating with the purpose to wait and see what happens. It's a pause, but not the type of pause an ellipsis warrants, where there's something being left unsaid. This is a pause where we're waiting to see what happens. It's being used well to build suspense this time. Tim's feet are kicking, he's searching for something to rest on, and he's finding a branch. M-dash. <laughs> Lots of tension. This is the M-dash operating just fine, and then the M-dash begins to feel like a jump cut flashing from one experience to the next, quickly and in succession. And he fell, M-dash, leaves scratching his face, M-dash, his body bouncing from branch to branch, M-dash, a jolt, M-dash, searing pain, bright light in his head, M-dash. The tensions have escalated, and the M-dash is no longer employed as a pause, but as an interruption, as we've seen before. No sooner does Tim experience one pain, it's interrupted by a new one, one after the other. Quote, the Land Cruiser fell free, gaining momentum as it rushed toward him, slamming against the branch where Tim had just been, M-dash. Again, it's an interruption, a sudden change. Luckily for Tim, the change is the Land Cruiser stopped falling. Quote, human beings walking around in the streets of the modern world, bouncing their pink new babies, hardly stop to think that the substance at the center of it all, M-dash, the substance that began the dance of life, M-dash, was a chemical almost as old as the earth itself, on page 209. Here the M-dash separates the familiar cliché of the dance of life, adding a whimsical connectivity to our memories of this metaphor, further ingratiating our thoughts to the common day lived experience and peeling back the layers showing the unseen, unconsidered underpinnings of the chemicals that make our DNA. Quote, recently too, M-dash, within the last half hour, on page 210. Here the M-dash is working like a colon, but in this case completely completing an observation and train of thought. Cursing. Tim curses upon realizing what a predicament he's in. He might use the S-word more than anyone in the novel, and especially in this moment on page 205. I'll have to check that. His tally is aided by swearing repeatedly up here in the tree, but recall, he also swears during the raptor attack back while they were on the tour of the facilities. Exclamation! The rear door was locked! Exclamation on page 206. Now, an exclamation mark is useful for indicating when something is to be read with sarcasm or as a joke. So oftentimes, the delivery of a joke or sac sarcasm is challenging to present graphically, so an exclamation is used to formally indicate this is so. And in this instance, the exclamation adds an emotional element to the text, that there was exasperation and revelation, but also something like sarcasm, like, duh, the answer was so simple after all. So a good use of the exclamation, I approve of it. Get away! Exclamation. Go on! Exclamation. Go! Exclamation. On page 207. Here, there's no subtext. It's just exclamation. Tim's yelling at a stegosaurus. Lax! Exclamation. As Tim starts searching for his sister in a panic. And the emphasis, uh, the exclamation makes a, reveals that he's not concerned about being overheard. He's not being subtle in any way. There's a lot of force between his yelling. Capitalization. Fertilization is written all in capitals because it's a label on the door. And again, to Crichton, or perhaps to his editors, labels will all be printed in capital letters. Here we'll talk about tension. The entire page with Tim trying different means of escape from the Land Cruiser before it falls from the tree and smashes them to death 
is very tense. He tries each door. He tries all the handles. He tries the windows. The mechanisms of employing italics and exclamation marks to in intimate how emotional Tim is and the rhetorical devices to further exasperate his worries are expertly employed to create a frenzied and panicked young boy. And then the end dash goes to work, creating dramatic pauses and then sudden interruptions, almost like the operative word here being almost like a jump scare. Sudden new pains and experiences as Timmy falls out of the tree. Literary techniques. We have a metaphor. Quote, the substance that began the dance of life on page 209. It's a fairly old cliche, but it's the this romantic idea that there's a graceful beauty to the ebbs and flows of life, as if it were a careful choreography or something like that. And think of, um, think of the old Disney film Fantasia as embodying that concept. Not to dancing animals and things like that. Simile. Quote, he was aware of a rhythmic creaking sound, like the rigging of a boat, on page 205, which is a great simile. I can imagine this sound perfectly. His face just inches from the dented grill, bent inward like an evil mouth, headlamps for eyes, on page 207. This makes the car seem like it's chasing after Tim. Quote, the Land Cruiser smashing down through the branches after him like a pursuing animal, on page 207. And again, this motif that the Land Cruiser is chasing him is extended. It's got a horrible smile, an evil smile. It's got headlamps for eyes, so it's got these glaring eyes, and it's uh, it's smashing down through the branches, pursuing like an animal. The Land Cruiser is almost given the agency of the Tyrannosaur. Perhaps this is an insight into Timmy's psyche and trauma, as this car is triggering his panic from the Tyrannosaur attack just, you know, 30 minutes before. Automatopoeia, quote, the wheel spun free in his hand with a loud crack. The Land Cruiser shifted position, dropping a few feet in the branches of the tree on page 205. Again, the crack is a sound spelled like it sounds. Crack again on 206 as the branches break under the weight of the Land Cruiser. We've got a crack a few times earlier, but then we get a crack with four Ks in it. That's the king daddy of breaking branches right there with four Ks. Today, 4K is really high definition, and this is no different. The first few cracks were just analog, but this one is in 4K, so it's time to get out of the tree. Plink. On page 208 is the sound of rain or water dripping from the trees. Well, it's not italicized. It's still a neat inclusion. So let's get into discussing this chapter a little bit more. Uh, there's a concept of show, don't tell. At no point does Crichton specifically say that Tim was concussed, but instead he gives all the symptoms. And that's our to our advantage as readers. We empathize with all the symptoms that Tim feels. And should we know what a concussion feels like, we would, we would recognize it as exactly what Tim's going through right here. This is writing done well, and Crichton's great at it. In particular here, the idea that the concussion is baiting him to return to sleep, which apparently is bad for people who get concussions. I looked a little more deeply into this and found reports that apparently there's nothing terribly wrong with going to sleep after a concussion, but if someone is asleep after a concussion, it is very difficult to diagnose whether there is more serious brain damage while they are sleeping. Things like a drooping face or seizures can't be observed if someone is sleeping and therefore a more serious brain injury can't be diagnosed right away. And early diagnosis is the best diagnosis, generally speaking. But please note, I am not a doctor. <laughs> if you or someone you know is suddenly concussed, don't listen to me. Consult a real doctor. Storytelling. The stegosaur is a bit of a strange inclusion in this chapter, but Crichton brings it in so Tim can reference something in the past and give him reason to check his watch. This is important because he'll discover his watch is cracked and unequip it, leaving it behind. And this creates a clue for Muldoon later on to indicate that Tim has survived. The cause and effect of all of this is very carefully crafted in the same vein as Show Don't Tell, in that all of Tim's actions happen for a reason, as opposed to just happening to reinforce the plot. But why is the stegosaurus there? Isn't that fairly contrived, you ask? 
Well, not especially. We're told the Stegosaur was attracted by the sound of the Land Cruiser crashing from the tree on page 207. So there's a lot of cohesion and cause and effect storytelling going on, and Crichton is executing at a high level here. All these actions and observations are carefully made into a cohesive world with carefully plotted, believable setups and payoffs. The damaged wristwatch is well done. I still don't know if the Stegosaur should have waddled from the south fields into the Tyrannosaur paddock or to the main road or wherever, you know, Timmy was. That seems like a long distance for the Stegosaur, but maybe we'll make that work. Tension. And then there's a, and then there's just simply plenty of tension. No, no dinosaurs in this chase, but some kid waking up in a prehistoric jungle with a car falling out of a tree on top of him. His feet slip on the storm-drenched branches. His hands stick with sap. Remember, these are coniferous trees. He has to hurry on 206. And we get all these tactile descriptions of climbing the tree, which we should all relate to from when we were kids, right? Which strengthens our empathy for Tim's descent. This chapter is a masterclass on tension, pacing, empathy, and writing mechanics. The movie adaptation. So this is very, very closely uh, adapted out of the text and into the film you'll recall. There are some similarities. Tim is in the car in a tree. Tim has thrown up. Maneuvering in the car causes it to continue to dislodge from its purchase in the tree, putting Tim's life in jeopardy. Once out of the car, the tree's branches continue to fail, and the tree comes crashing down. Tim is a good tree climber, and this is a good tree to climb, and the branches are spaced close together, almost like a staircase. The car lands just above Tim on a large branch, the grill staring at him in the face. Evidence at the site indicates that there are survivors of the Tyrannosaur attack. Differences. Tim is alone in the car in this tree. Dr. Grant isn't here to help. Tim falls straight out of the car and crashes over the branches and wins himself landing on his stomach across a big branch. That doesn't happen in the film. The car doesn't creak over the, and land on top of them after they've climbed down the tree either. So neat stuff. Control is a hoax. This isn't a specific reference to control and hoaxes, but the idea that the emergency radios weren't plugged in and charged so they were available in the event of an emergency is A, par for the course, and B, kind of funny. And it's written that way by Crichton. Quote, but nobody had them plugged in naturally, page 209, said by Muldoon. Muldoon's never been impressed with the security measures and emergency prep on the island, and this is just another example of the park not being willing to accept the idea that this place is very dangerous. Recall Muldoon isn't allowed to destroy the raptors, isn't permitted the weaponry he'd like on the island, and what weaponry he is permitted is extremely limited, locked away, and in this specific case, stolen by Nedry. It's tough when the voice of caution isn't taken seriously. Timeline. It's to be noted the technicians are still at dinner on page 209. It's dinner time. I hadn't thought of it this way, but the Tyrannosaurus and Dilophosaurus both eat people at dinner time. <laughs> Slick. Do you recall anything from earlier that may have symbolically represented a dinner bell? I don't, but uh, we need to go back and see if something like that happens. I don't think there is, though. <sighs> people of color. Quote, human beings walking around in the streets of the modern world, bouncing their pink new babies, hardly stop to think that the substance at the center of it all, the substance that began the dance of life, was a chemical almost as old as the earth itself. This is a challenging sentence to read because it obviously overlooks that globally, biologically, and historically, human beings have babies that come in many colors and many more than just pink. Yet this argument being made, aiming to take such a historic substantive and holistic perspective on what it is to be a human being selects that babies are pink or that human beings walking around in the streets of the modern world have pink babies anyhow it may be unintentional but there is obviously an underpinning worldview perhaps a hegemonic construct that's beyond Crichton's consciousness and perhaps not that writes the predominant narrative as white and this specific inclusion of pink babies continues that pattern we've seen in this novel the baby needn't be any color 
Crichton specifies. His vision of human beings walking around in the modern world is white. For now, let's add this to our collection of comments on people of color, and once we've cataloged all our observations, we can review the data in its entirety and see what that has to say. Shape of the data. In this chapter, we don't get to see the graph, but Wu reads a temperature chart of the freezer and sees that there is a spike on page 209. And as mentioned before, specifically in conversation with my terrific guest Ben Lewis in episode 24, Control, just by looking at that graph, the shape of the data, the spike in the temperature, Wu can tell that something is out of place. And this is an indication that things are out of control, specifically that Nedry has entered the freezer, and they will deduce that he'd stolen embryos for profit, eventually. Cloning dinosaurs. We're told that DNA must be kept on computer because a molecule is so large that each species requires 10 gigabytes of optical disk space to store the details of all their iterations. Wu intends to inspect all 15 species, which is a, quote, tremendous amount of information to search through, we're told on page 209. We're told in this chapter that DNA is incredibly ancient, and almost all living creatures share mostly the same DNA. Human beings, for example, are, quote, walking around in the streets of the modern world, bouncing their pink new babies, hardly stopping to think that their substance at the center of it all, the substance that began the dance of life, was a chemical almost as old as the Earth itself, on page 209. Then on page 210, we're given a graph of which animals have rana, or frog DNA, and it includes the myosaurs, procomsognathids, othnelia, velociraptors, and hypsilophodontids. And the results are clear. All breeding dinosaurs incorporated rana, on page 210. And note, there's an argument to be made that the Dilophosaurus and the park are also represented by two genders, but we'll get there later on. This will contribute to the argument that basically, frog DNA or not, the animals weren't being successfully screened from the beginning, that Jurassic Park's control mechanisms weren't successful. The radiation and chromosome denials, etc., weren't successful ever. But we'll see if that argument holds up when we get finished collecting the data. Island layout. The stegosaur appears below the tree that Tim is in. They left the south fields where the volcanic activity is, and returned to where the tyrannosaur paddock is, near the sauropod paddock, which contains the hadrosaurs and apatosaurs, if you recall. So the stegosaurus terrain is at least two paddocks away, yet one has wandered all the way under Tim's tree, we're told on page 206. Holy cow, the tyrannosaur really threw that land cruiser quite far. <laughs> Just kidding. This may indicate that at the south end of the island, the enclosure is a more organic shape, or that the stegosaur paddock, tyrannosaur paddock, and apatosaur paddock all touch in a sort of divvied up triangular shape at the southern tip. And think of something like the Kansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri tri-state marker. And if you think of it like that, this isn't so crazy. Before we go today, I want to say thank you again to Dr. Roger Letterer for coming on the show. I truly hope that the, the Letterer Crichton referencing was based on today's guest. And Dr. Letterer, you were a good sport to humor me throughout all of this interview. So thank you so much for coming on. Now I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show, chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, you can drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Parkcast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com. You're finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. For me, I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also about that too. 
Until next time. I think we know the spark is gone.